Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this is the 14th sermon in our sermon series on the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. And this evening's study is Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 through verse 5 of chapter 5, page 4 in your pew Bible. Now it's at this point where the narrative returns again to Adam and Eve. Our first parents give birth to another son the one of promise. He is the one who will replace the dead Abel. And as you can see from your pew Bible on page 4, verse 1 of chapter 5 tells us that we crossed into the second section of Genesis. We've started the prologue, then section 1 of the generations of the heavens and the earth, and last Sunday, we came to that conclusion in the line of Cain. We went from our creation and commission to bring glory to God by filling the earth with his image to the deception of the evil one, our fall into disobedience through our first parents and the tragic hallmarks of the new order of sin where death rather than eternal life, will reign. We saw tragically how Cain's line, his genealogy, glories in deception, in self-absorption, and of greed. There is disobedience, retaliation, unlimited revenge, deception, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh. Marriage instituted by God is corrupted. Women's honored status is lost. Murder ends the line of Cain. The very qualities that are hateful in the eyes of the Lord are celebrated and encouraged in the eyes of Cain's descendants. This, sadly, is the first genealogy of Scripture. Moses continues now in a contrast, the seed of the serpent in the line of Cain, and now the seed of promise, the seed of the woman. Both are contrasted one with the other. In this, Moses pastorally speaks to God's people, saying that you are not of this line. You are God's children by faith. And so this second section, the book of the generations of Adam, traces this line of faith, this line of promise, to the next great family in Noah and the flood. And as we shall see, as we reach that stage, when the genealogy of Seth concludes for a moment, that one indeed can change one's spiritual descent by the intent of our heart and mind, we too 
can become children of the deceiver, which in the case of humanity, by the end of chapter 6, we are told is devoted to evil continually. So the birth of Seth underlines the great distinction between the character of the godly line of promise and the descendants of the seed of the serpent. One serves God, the other serves self. One instills godliness in children, the other teaches greed, self-absorption, selfishness. One lives with eyes of faith, the other with the eyes of the flesh. This great conflict typifies all of human history, which is a climax in the resolution of the cross and the final victory of God's faithful promise in the second coming of our Savior and the restoration of Eden, the restoration of the garden in the new heavens and the new earth. We begin then with the promise of God because this is what forms the preface to the genealogy that follows. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So the third son is named Seth, which, as the text tells us here, means the appointed one or the promised one. And the wordplay explains the reason for it. He's the substitute for his dead older brother. Now we see how this wordplay works itself out because it's a direct relation to Genesis 3.15. This child, Eve hopes, may well be the appointed one, the promised one, who will crush the serpent's head. Now this great truth is underlined still more here in the second genealogy that begins now. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now why would I say that this great truth of the faithfulness of God's promise is marked here in this simple verse, verse 26. I mean, we begin by noticing that Seth has a son and names him Enosh, which means weak or faint one. Now, we don't know why he's named him that. It could be something unique to the child. But we can indeed see, in contrast to what we saw last Sunday, how Seth is fully aware of our weakened condition. The line of Cain named their children after such things as beauty or tinkling bell, but not here. Rather, it is the fact that our fallen condition is made evident in the birth of a child. But there's still more here. It's actually Underline the most in what follows. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
Haven't indeed Adam and Eve and, and their descendants been doing exactly that? Haven't they been calling upon the name of the Lord in worship or, or in prayer? We have seen examples of that, haven't we? In terms of the way in which Abel and Cain bring their offering for worship in Eden. So what does this sentence mean? Well, we must do a close reading of the grammar here. The first thing that we should notice is the way in which in your pew Bible, the name Lord is all in capitals. Now, when you read the introduction to your Bible, you'll notice that that's the where in the text, the sacred name of God, Yahweh, appears. What we have here is actually God's covenant name appearing for the first time by itself. We've seen earlier in Genesis 2 how the covenant name Yahweh is joined with God the creator, underlining creator and covenant redeemer. But here it stands alone. The grammar here is passive, not active. In other words, they were called of Yahweh rather than they called upon Yahweh. So what does this suggest to us? It tells us that the seed of the woman, the seed of the promise, so identify with it that they themselves are now called by God's covenant name. They were called by the name of Yahweh. The point is here that there is this holy, godly line that is known from earliest history by God's name, his unique name. Because they are his children. They are the children of promise, the children of faith. We see God's grace working here, don't we? From the earliest chapters of Genesis, We saw when we studied Luke's genealogy for the Lord Jesus that he understood this too. That's why in his genealogy, the line of Seth culminates in the promise of the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Going from Seth to Adam, as Luke tells us, the son of God the first son, and now the ultimate son. The first Adam and the last Adam. We see here in these early words how our Heavenly Father is always faithful to his promise. His word, my dear friends, does not fail. It appears first that the line of the woman's seed is cut short, By Cain's brutal murder, the serpent has won. But God's promises are sure and true and cannot be overcome. This is so important for us as believers, my dear friends. For in the way in which life can treat us, whether it stays the same year in and year out and we see the success of others around us 
or we ourselves experience personal tragedy, we can forget that God is faithful, that somehow we must see to our own safety and defense. But that simply is not true. God's promise will never go unfulfilled for you. You, by faith, trusting in that promise, will stand with him on that glorious day. When your Savior will show his wounds and say, You, my dear friend and believer, are his brother, his sister, won by his blood. Can you see how already here we're being prepared for the mystery of the cross? It appears like Cain and Abel that at the crucifixion, the seed of the serpent gains the final victory. The Lord Jesus Christ is crucified. The servant of the Lord defeated But what they could not possibly understand, that even the angels of heaven long to look and see the wonder that it's through, through the suffering and death of the cross, that God brings about our victory in him. His word does not fail. He raises Christ from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit, And this is the same for the church of God. Although you and I, as believers on earth, the church militant, we say, the church that endures conflict, that may be defeated, that may be slandered and persecuted, The fact is that God's promises to us are solid and certain, and we shall conquer in Christ. We shall reign with Christ because we are of this family. This line of promise and faith are called by God's name, for you are God's children the people of God. Now we should do a close reading of the genealogy itself. The first purpose set up for us now, encouraging us now, we know from the preface. It anchors us in God's redemptive plan, just at the point where we might need it as well, as those who are discouraged It also shows us how the line reaches ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. It stirs us in our faith, encourages us to think more and more of our union in him. That this is our family tree. These are our ancestors by faith. The second purpose is, of the genealogy that the preface hints at, but now we see clearly, is to show that even within God's family, even amongst the children of Yahweh, the new order begun in Adam's fall 
is still in effect. Cut off from the source of life, death still reigns. We all indeed must die. Moses emphasizes it here in this genealogy over and over again with this rhythmic pattern. And so he died. And so he died. And so he died. This is our condition after the fall. We are mortal. We are dust of the earth. And to dust we shall return. We die. It's this dark curtain that underlines our need, this is not the way things are supposed to be, is still in effect. But the original mandate is also shown here. It's a second rhythmic pattern in the genealogy. Do you see it? Each line of descent has on the one hand, and so he died, and on the other had sons and daughters, had sons and daughters, had sons and daughters. And so Moses rewinds the tape, as it were, begins with a quick summary of the account of creation of man and woman in Genesis 1. The phrase in 5.1, when he writes how mankind is created in the likeness of God, is a direct quotation from chapter 1, verse 26. As what follows here, the blessing of the man and the woman, is a quote from chapter 1 again, verses 27 and 28. Three verses repeated here. But notice we gain more information to encourage us and strengthen us because God gives us our name. He names the man as Adam. We see Adam naming the creatures naming the woman, all along learning again and again that naming and authority go together. But here it begins the genealogy. Here this bright light in the darkness of so he died, so he died, dust and mortality. We see that the source of life itself in the naming of humanity is our Heavenly Father, reminding us who is related to whom, who is descended from whom, and who named whom. The man and the woman are the first children of God. Who gives them their name? Their Heavenly Father. And so the names we receive, the name of Christ, marks us as we assume it in baptism, that we are of that family by faith. But there is still more here. We have the promise of God, the likeness of God, but now the likeness of Adam. The promise of grace, deliverance in Jesus Christ that the naming shows us is now Underlined in the tragic reality of the new order in verses 3 to 5. Where is it? Let's have a look. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, and do you see it there? In his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. 
The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, can you spot the differences there? I slowed down to sort of put them in bold by doing so. Is how in verse 1, Moses repeats for emphasis the fact that we, men and women, were originally created in the likeness of God. Here we read how in the next generation of Adam, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. In other words, Seth received the likeness of God in a very specific way. It's filtered, as it were. It passes through, it's mediated by his father, Adam. Now we must ask, what sort of filter is this? What, what sort of likeness is this? Well, we know the answer, don't we? It's a nature that is restless in disobedience. It's a nature that is twisted by the fall, frail, subject to illness, to disease, to, to age. It's mortal. It's in sinful misery, which is why our confession calls us miserable sinners. It's not the idea that we are somehow sad that we're sinners, but it's not our natural state. Rather, it has come to us through the likeness of our sinful parents and flesh. There's a reversal of elements here from the original creation in the birth of Seth, isn't there? All you have to do is flick back a few pages to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And what do you find there? You find God saying this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you notice the order there? It's image, likeness. Now, flick back again. Adam, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Do you see there's an order change here? Moses is showing us that God's image in men and women is twisted by the likeness of their parents' nature that, in this case, Seth inherits and comes to us. Now, we shouldn't dismiss this as just a bit of interesting grammatical wordplay because in the garden, in the presence of God, Adam is the representative of all humanity. He receives the covenant with our Heavenly Father. He is given the commission. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. When he broke God's law in disobedience, he brought a condemnation down not only on himself, but on all his offspring. Because Adam sinned, not only do all people die, not only do we share the same curse, but we are all born 
with the likeness of Adam. We are all born sinful. And are by birth held accountable for Adam's disobedience. You see, this is one of those words of Scripture that God imputes or credits Adam's sin to all who descend from Adam. But we should ask a question here. How can one be a sinner if one has done nothing wrong? The answer, according to the scriptures, is simple. The scripture defines sin not as a hostile act against God, but rather it is a particular state of being, a state of separation from God, with the result that man considers God his enemy. God cannot exist where sin exists. Because he is pure love, he cannot be overturned by our hate. The acts of sin that we may do are the result of our condition, of sinfulness, our nature, that we all share because we all carry Adam's likeness. That's Moses' point. Now, one writer said it like this. Everything follows the seed of its own nature. If I plant a sunflower seed in the ground, I don't expect a tomato plant to break the surface of my garden. No black crow ever produces a white dove. A lion does not give birth to a lamb. So no man or woman which carries the likeness of Adam ever gives birth to a sinless child. This is the imputation of Adam's nature to his descendants that Moses records here. Now do you see again how even here in these earliest pages of the scripture we're being set up or being trained and taught in the nature of the Christ-saving work for us. Because the same language is applied to the Lord Jesus' saving work for you and me. Notice how the doctrine of imputation is expressed here. And think through this now. If we accept what it says, the biblical definition of sin, then what would, would that require of someone to deliver us? Well, first of all, that this person would not only take care of our individual sins we have committed, but he would also have to take care of this sinful likeness, this sinful nature. One is needed who could make his descendants righteous before God. This is indeed what happens. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience, 
the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And in verse 17 of Romans 5, he says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you see then how much we can be encouraged? The gospel is here in nutshell, right at the beginning. That you and I, by faith, have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, confirmed in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. All the penalty has been paid. Every single act of disobedience, our individual sins, are laid to rest, past, present, and future. But still more. We are not left as Adam was on that terrible day in the garden before he took and disobeyed, but rather we gain his righteousness, his likeness. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and so gradually makes us more and more in the likeness of the one who saved us. We receive the abundance of grace that the free gift of his righteousness purchased for us in Jesus Christ. Can we not see then how important it is to understand that you are in him? Why then would we want to seek evil, blood-stained ways? Why would we continue to do these things? My dear friend, the more we ponder the truth of what Christ has won for us, made known in this earliest of times in humanity, against the backdrop of death and chaos of sin all around us, how much more can we be encouraged to know that even then, the message given was for you and me. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.